0: Hey, everybody. Uh, Like Scott said, I'm John Ross Forgery. I am the youngest son of John and Doogie Forgery. They sit over there, over there. They've been holding that side of the church down for as long as I can remember. Um, And it is so good to be back here. Uh, I was doing the math the other day, and I spent... 10 years of my life being um, discipled and edified here within uh, this church, not specifically this building, but amongst these believers. And for some of y'all, you're like, 10 years? That's not impressive. Uh, take into consideration I'm 21, so that's a, that's a good chunk of my life. Um, but no, it, it truly is a, a blessing to be back here um, and to Uh, worship again with my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters of the faith who poured into me for so much of my life. Um, And I'm super excited to be here. Um, And so before I get started, I want to ask a couple of questions. Uh, How many of you out there have a Facebook handful, y'all. How many of you have an Instagram, if not a Facebook? Okay, cool. Well, and for y'all who don't have either and think this is about to be a really mini- a millennial-minded sermon, I promise it's not. That's not where I'm going to go with this. I like the old stuff. Um, I like uh, Charles Spurgeon and Hank Williams Sr., so don't worry. And I promise you'll never hear those two people in the same group again, so remember you heard it here first. But anyway, I, I, I love the old stuff, but I, I asked that because I want to reference something that was going around on Facebook uh, pretty steadily there for a while it's these videos where these people would put their dogs on one side of the room and they would go to the other and they would lift up a blanket and hide behind the blanket and they would drop it and before the blanket fell they would jump behind a door or behind a wall or something and if you haven't seen these videos you gotta look it up because they're they're the purest thing on on this earth like because the dog will go from wagging his tail and be so happy and like just stops and like stone cold and they get so confused because there's just a blanket there now. And they're like, what just happened? It blows their minds. And and usually one of three things happens when in in these videos, number one, the dog just sits there and cries and then I start tearing up. I'm like, oh my goodness, how could he do this to this poor dog? But, or the dog will run over to the blanket, last place it saw its owner and start nuzzling around and trying to find its owner in the last place it knew he was, or the dog just goes berserk. And like it goes running through the house and you can hear snails on the, on the hardwood floor, just up the stairs, down the stairs, in the bathroom, searching all the wrong places, ultimately to come up disappointed. And while I was preparing for my sermon, uh, I started thinking about these videos, which also tells you a little something about my sermon prep and how extensive it is. I'm thinking about Facebook videos there in the middle of it. But I started thinking about these videos and I was like, man, How accurately does that describe us when we lose sight of God? How accurately does that describe us when we think God has disappeared on us? How often do we lay down and cry and holler out, oh, woe is me, God hates me? Oh, woe is me. Or how often do we go back to the last place we knew God was and we we try to recreate this emotional and uh, spiritual experience. We listen to the same song we had in that moment or we read the same Bible verse and we try to recreate an experience we once had, ultimately to come up disappointed and confused. Or how often do we go frantically searching for God in all the wrong places only to wind up tired, exhausted and disappointed, no closer to God than when we started. This is what I want to address today um, and what was burdened on my heart. Um, so we are gonna be in Matthew 26, 36 through 46 and I'm going to, or we're gonna exegete this passage and we're gonna see three places and, and three areas we can find rest in the times that we feel like God is distant or feel like we are by ourselves. Before we do that, I'm gonna take a quick drink of water because I am getting parched and we're like 5 minutes in so that's a good start. <clears throat> but Matthew 26:36 through 46 says then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, my father if this, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he found his disciples sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Lord, bless the reading and teaching of his scripture. The first place, I believe, as believers, we find rest in these times of great sorrow and great trouble is we find rest in prayer. This is very obvious in the passage. Jesus removes himself from his disciples and the Lord of all things, the, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, falls flat on his face and cries out before God. And and the the terminology used here, uh, the terms troubled and and sorrowful, I don't think we fully grasp what they mean. I don't think the English really depicts what's going on here. Um, The author of Luke writes that Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood in this moment. They were thick. They were constant. They poured from him uncontrollably. Jesus was in a moment of sheer distress let us not underestimate the sheer tyranny that was going on inside of our Lord during this moment. And so what he does, he goes and he falls on the face on his face and cries out to God, And if you've never read this passage before you, you would read up until this point and having read the past of Matthew you would understand that like Jesus is the Messiah and, and, and Matthew was writing to a primarily Greek audience so they would under, or a Hebrew audience excuse me and so they would get it and, and you know they would see Christ had done all these great things and had constantly been seeking the Lord's heart and the Lord had had favor on Christ in the past and had spoke audibly to Christ spoke audibly around Christ led Christ by his spirit and we expect to see here in Christ's most dire need up to this point in his life when he is face down on the ground crying out to Hosanna, Yahweh, Lord, help me. We expect God to do something. We expect God to respond to Christ in this moment. But what do we see? We we, we see silence. And some of you are like, well, how do you know that, John Ross? Well, let's continue on. He goes back to his disciples. He rebukes Peter, which is funny because Peter's the one who said that he would never forsake him. Um, so if you make a promise to God, you better be sure you're willing to keep it. That's a, another sermon for another day. If you invite me back, I might do that one. So there's a little enticing for you. But, but he rebukes Peter and he goes right back and he prays the same thing. If Yahweh would have spoken to Christ in that moment, why would he just be repeating himself right now? And he goes back, and the disciples are sleeping again, and he doesn't even wake them up. This time he goes back, he falls on his face again, and and he keeps praying. He's praying, you know, if this cup can pass from me, please, but not my will, but yours. And the only thing that ensues is silence from the Father. And in my flesh and in my selfishness, I'm like, come on, God, like, this is your boy here. Like you you didn't even give him like that classic, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it. You know, like we we say that, like I could be missing both my hands due to a lawnmower and you're like, oh, just don't look at it, It, it's gonna be fine, John Ross just, you know, don't just, it's fine, don't worry about it, it's gonna be fine. Like he doesn't even do that. And and, and so I started to ponder about this and started praying about it and, and I was burdened with the thought, maybe, Our prayers are less about changing God and more about changing us. Maybe our prayers aren't to change God's plans and to change God's mind, but to change our plans and to change our mind. See, when we pray, we recognize a few very basic things that we so often forget. We remember when we pray to God that we are weak, We remember that we are not in control. We do not have power over the situations that come into our lives. There's stuff that happens to you and me that we can't do anything about. And we are weak and we need help. We also recognize there's someone out there who can help. We recognize that God is sovereign. God is powerful. God can control all things with a a snap. He can relieve our pain. He can relieve our sorrow. He can make beauty from ashes from which the ground you came. He he made man from dirt. He can do all things. And we also recognize that he cares for us. More than he's just able, he cares for us. Why else would he listen? God desires for us to approach him. He made it possible the, the curtain during the crucifixion in the Holy of Holies was split top to bottom, showing that God opened the door for normal man to approach him through the blood of Christ. It no longer takes the blood of sheeps or goats or, or a, a high priest to enter into the presence of God, but we come boldly as children of God, washed in the blood of Christ, as his children, able to speak to him and able to enter his presence. And, and when we pray with the right heart and the right mindset, we remember these things. Remember, We remember he is creator and we are creation. He is good, we are bad. He is strong, we are weak. We need him, he doesn't need us. And that's what prayer is supposed to do. I'm not saying it's bad to ask God for what you want. I'm not saying that at all. Even Jesus says, you know, you fathers here on earth, if your son asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? Obviously not. And if you would do that, how much greater are the gifts God would give to you? But that's not what prayer is about. Prayer at its core, at its heart, is the alignment of our hearts with God's. If you've ever driven a vehicle that that has misaligned tires, you're constantly pulling it back and pulling it back, trying to keep it between the mustard and the mayonnaise, if you will, you know, keep it between the white and the yellow. And, you know, trying to pull it back in. And, And what prayer does is this spiritual tire alignment where God's not constantly like, come on, come on. You know I'm God. You know I'm this. But it aligns us so he just drives forward. Do what? Oh, okay. I was like... Okay, we got a question, I like it, let's, let's do this. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm partially deaf in one ear, so if you, if you, you gotta yell at me, I'm so sorry. Amen. No, bring it on, sister, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm practically a Baptocostal, it's great. <clears throat> yeah, you laugh now, if I start speaking in tongues, we'll see where you do that. <laughs> but hey, let, me, let me reel myself back in here. But that is the point of prayer, child of God. Quit thinking it's all about you and all about what you can get and how you can manipulate God or twist his arm behind his back or kind of sweet talk him into giving what you want. But ask him to make you want what he wants. And this brings me to my second point. As believers, we can rest in his will. And the will of God is such a... um, I, don't, I almost want to say a lofty idea. It's something a million sermons have been written on. It's a, a million books have been written on the will of God. I remember in Sunday school, in, in Bible studies, and this and that, we always talk about the will of God. How do we find the will of God? What is the will of God? You know, who is Will and how does he know God? I mean, all kinds of questions are asked. Um, but I, I want to dive into this a little bit, and In, instead of just this quick brushing, I want to dive into what the will of God is. And I think one of the best descriptions of this came by the th- great theologian R.C. Sproul. If you don't know who he is, you've got to look him up. He he was a great pastor, great theologian, great uh, man of God who's gone be with the Lord now. But he he's just the bomb diggity, and he explained that um, if we in our finite minds are going to understand God's will, we must recognize that there are three separate wills of God that we see within the scripture. If we don't recognize that there's three distinct wills, we are going to get confused, and we're going to get confused with who God is and how we relate to him. Um, I'm really gonna only talk about two. I'm gonna mention the first one, um, but it's a little uh, confusing and it doesn't have much to do with my sermon, but I feel like I'd be doing God a disservice and you a disservice if I didn't mention it. Um, The first one is the permissive will of God. And if you're a note taker, highly recommend writing these down. These are like, They're great. Um, Not because I thought of them, but because they were enlightened to RC. Anyway, the permissive will of God. This is God's allowance of sin in this world, right? God is not the author of sin. He is not the advocator for sin. He's not a supporter of sin, but he does allow sin to operate in our world. And often, because he's good and he's sovereign and he's all-powerful and he's he's great and deserving of praise, he often uses it for his good and his glory in the end. quick story about, you know, uh, or biblical story that we see this is is Joseph. You know, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery so he could have a terrible life and be abused and, and ultimately die a slave. Well, what happens? You know, Joseph gets elevated in this really rich guy's house and it's great. You know, he, he's like the top slave at this point. Well, then this guy's wife tries to rape him and he runs away and she claims that he tried to rape her and he gets thrown in prison, which is also terrible. This is, that, that's a sin that happened to Joseph. Well, you continue on and through a manner of like God-inspired and God-empowered uh, events, he's the second most powerful guy in Egypt and he saves e- Egypt from a famine and many other peoples outside of Egypt And Joseph's brothers come back and they're like, oh, dang, that's Joseph, like, he's gonna kill us because we tried to sell him into slavery, which is a major party foul, like, you shouldn't do that. And Joseph's like, no, 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 it's like, it's cool. Like, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And so God does allow sin to occur and often uses it for his glory, but I I want to reiterate that he is not the author or supporter of sin. Um, Secondly we have his desired will This isn't the will or the word that R.C. used I couldn't pronounce that word I knew I'd butcher it up here And my dad would laugh at me So this is I I use the term desired It it means the same thing This is what God wills That would make him happy And bring him pleasure And and, you know put a smile on his face And join his heart if you will But this doesn't necessarily happen Like God desires all people come to know him And all people repent That's not going to happen God desires that we put away our selfish desires in the flesh that binds us, but we're not gonna do that. There are wills that would please, God's desired will would please him, but he does not force it upon his creation, but he, he wills that we turn from our sin. He wills that we live in obedience to him. And thirdly, we have his decreed will. This is the will of God that is set in stone, that he predestined from before the foundations of the earth. Such things as judgment day fall into this category. There's nothing I can do or you can do that will stop judgment day. And I feel like it's important to reiterate that, or to say that his decreed will does not always make him the happiest in the moment of of the operation of the decreed will, if you will. That was a lot of wills all real close together, but, but let me explain in, in a human example. If a judge sentences somebody to, to capital punishment or life in prison without parole, well, does the judge will that? Obviously, or else he wouldn't do that. Does he want that to happen? Well, to some extent, or else he wouldn't do that, but does it bring him pleasure? Does it please the judge and make, uh, put a smile on his face and, and bring his heart pleasure knowing that he, by his word and by his gavel, this person will die? And Ezekiel, uh, or excuse me, Ezekiel 18 says, God mourns the destruction of the wicked. Well, why does he do it? Because that's what needs to be done. God is perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfect god desires his own glorification even though it causes him pain and he desires the peace that his righteousness brings even though it sometimes brings him mourning and brings him sadness some of you out there may be like john ross i'm not jiving with you i don't know if i get that let me bring this case against you what about the crucifixion the crucifixion was first talked about in genesis if you don't know that Uh, God says to the serpent, you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. This is a direct allusion to the crucifixion. Not many people know this, but uh, crucifixion, a lot of people would die with bruised heels because crucifixion, the death was by suffocation and they would lift themselves up off their heels and many times when they pulled the bodies off the crosses, they would have a bruised heel. But praise be to God, Jesus stomped the head of the serpent. He destroyed evil, even with a bruised heel. But I, I, I struggled to accept the fact that in the moments of the crucifixion, God was, was happy. I struggled to think that when they stripped Jesus down and beat him to an inch of his life and pulled the beard from his face, that God the Father was smiling. I doubt when they pierced his hands and his feet with the nails and lifted them up and mocked him, the ones he came to save, I doubt the Father was very pleased or very jovial in those instances. But what occurred from that? We see in Philippians that Christ is elevated above all else. Seated at the right hand of the Father, God poured on Christ the ultimate glorification after pouring on him his ultimate wrath. And due to Christ's sacrifice, he has brought many sons and daughters to glory. Praise be to God. And so I I come almost as a bearer of bad news, which I'm sorry, I'll eventually preach a sermon where I don't tell you anything bad and I'll go back to my house and throw up because I feel like I did you a disservice. But I, I feel like I have to tell you that bad stuff will happen in your life. And God has decreed that stuff that's not easy and that you would consider bad and painful will happen in your life. People will die. People will hate you. People will fight against you. In other parts of the world, they'll kill you. But he does that for your edification and his glorification. As we go through these trials and these tribulations and and, and the problems of this world, we come out on the other side being a little bit more like Christ. See, in these moments of fire, in these moments of torment, the Father is peeling away the flesh that binds you to your sin. He chips away from the stone that covers your heart. He he makes you a little bit more like his son. And you come out on the other side and the only words you can utter is praise be to Yahweh. Praise be to God for his sustaining power in my life. Praise be to God that I went through this so that I can be more like Christ and I am more free today than I was when I started this trial. Whether that freedom comes on this side of eternity or the next, we come out as believers saying, praise be to God, looking more like Christ. Yeah, that was a really awkward pause, I'm so sorry. This brings me to point number three and i understand i'm on point number three and we're getting close to the end and we got to beat the methodist to wades i I get it like this might be the first time in all of eternity that wades has ran out of fried chicken today so we gotta beat them but i i implore you please listen to me please hear me let me finish up and y'all y'all go beat them i'll be right there with you i'll be bringing up the rear praise be to god but I implore you, if for another reason than the word of God is being preached, stay with me right now. Stay with me. The last place we find rest is in the fact that Christ drank from the cup. We we see this allusion to the cup throughout this passage and in all three times Christ prays, you know, if I don't have to drink from this cup, don't make me. This cup is an allusion to the wrath of God. It's, it's you know, referenced all throughout the Old Testament from Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Isaiah, Obadiah, all the ayahs you know, kind of hit on it. Um, but it's an allusion to the wrath of God. And I want to tell you, I, I want to I say this carefully, I want to tell you that it's more than just the crucifixion of Christ. That's not wholly what the cup is referring to There's something that happened on a spiritual level that we don't fully understand that happened on Christ on that cross. That's really the wrath of God. See, the wrath of God in in terms of uh, the end of days, in terms of judgment, in terms of sentencing uh, sinners to hell is a complete removal of his love, grace, and mercy. His mercy is what withholds His wrath. His grace is the physical embodiment of His love that He gives to every one of us, not just as believers, but but to unbelievers as well. It's called common grace. Common grace is the ability for us to get up, it's the ability to walk, it's the ability to have any pleasurable emotion love, joy, peace, happiness, it's our ability to have children, hold children, love children, it's our ability to feel the warmth of the sun on our skin, it's the ability to have any pleasurable emotion on this earth that God freely gives to every person he creates because he loves us. And his mercy withholds his wrath for a time. What happened on the cross was there was a complete removal of God's love, of God's grace, and of God's mercy on Christ on a spiritual level. I'm not saying Christ couldn't stand, I'm not saying he couldn't see, but I'm telling you, that a spiritual darkness and, and wrath and anger, the perfect holy hatred of God fell upon our Savior on the cross. And there are not words in the English language that properly depict what happened to Christ on the cross. So often we simplify it to him being crucified. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that the physical abuse he took was, was minute. I'm telling you that for most of us, we would have died long before we got to the cross. But I'm telling you, when Christ hollered out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He, for the first time, experienced in all of eternity past, He had experienced his perfect love, his perfect adoration, the perfect respect and love of the Father and that was replaced with an unfiltered, unbridled, uncontrolled wrath of God fell upon our Savior. (laughs) That's what he adored for us. He did that so we might find rest in him. He said in John 16, 33, for I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He tells us that we should not fear the person who can only take our life, but fear the God who can cast our souls into Sheol. Hell. Uh. Church. The church, not this church, but the church for the past 2,000 years has been built on the blood of the martyrs from the moment of Peter's upside-down crucifixion because he said he was too unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord to the thousands of christians during the rule of nero who were thrown to gladiators who were put on stakes and lifted up and set ablaze at night to light the streets of rome to those who were persecuted during the time of the reformation because they fought for the the inherency of the scripture and said that i do not need to pay you for god to love me and they fought for the truths of the scripture To those in only the past hundred years who have been beaten, have been imprisoned, have been scorned, have been mocked, have been murdered in ways such as crucifixion, execution, beheading, being eaten, upon their backs, the church thrives. And on their backs, we can say praise be to God because the worst of the worst has happened to Christians throughout the age. But like Eric said, the horse they can do is kill us and that just sends us to God. Praise be the Lord. And when we face God, we do not face a judgmental king who desire or who is going to send us into the depths of Sheol, but a loving father who welcomes us home. There's a pretty famous Christian writer. Some of you've probably heard of him. His name's C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's great. I love him. Um, he wrote this little book called *The Chronicles of Narnia*: *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. Ten out of ten movie. If you don't like to read, like I do. But there's a—it's a magical land. If you haven't seen it, it's a magical uh, time where four children, four siblings, two brothers and two sisters are transported to a uh, magical realm full of centaurs and witches and talking animals. It's a wild time for sure. And during one of these scenes, Lucy and Susan, excuse me, are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in their tree stump house. And they're talking about this cool cat named Aslan. And it's funny that I say cool cat because he's a lion. Some of y'all may not have gotten that, but Aslan's a lion. i'm going to read to you uh their dialogue here and um and i digress i'm just gonna read the dialogue um is he a man asked lucy aslan a man said mr beaver certainly not or mr beaver said sternly certainly not Do you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking and their, without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And, church, I'm here to tell you that you will face struggle and you will face times when the Father feels distant, you will face times when you feel weak and powerless. But I want to tell you and leave you with this, that our Father is good. Following his will isn't always safe. It's not always easy. It's not always the most pleasurable in our eyes. But it is good like our Father. God bless you.